Hello all you film freaks and movie maniacs out there. My name is Nolan Carr and I'd like to welcome you to the go-to podcast for all things cinema. But before you can ask any questions, just sit back, relax, as I present to you a Lane Studio Productions, Critiquing with Carr. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode number four of Critiquing with Carr and our second edition of Favorite Film Fridays. And we have our very first sequel of these reviews, and that is The Godfather Part 2. And what another great movie we have to review for today. I had so much fun reviewing Godfather 1 recently that I thought might as well look at the list, see what's coming in at review number four, and then go from there. And lo and behold, I was totally surprised by some shape or fashion to see Godfather 2 as the next film we're reviewing. Now, that was my attempt to tell a joke and seem sarcastic. I don't think that came off well. It didn't seem like it came off well in terms of myself, but whatever, we'll keep that in. We won't cut that out. You all hopefully by now know the gist of these reviews. We talk about who's behind the camera that made this possible, who's in front of the camera to make this possible, other things like the budget, how it did in terms of release with this worldwide gross, what its competition was, the top 10 list of highest grossing films of that year, the awards it was nominated for, my likes and dislikes, and then my final review and my ranking out of 10 Diamond Days and whether or not you should see this film. With that being said, let's begin. Starting off, we had Francis Ford Coppola not just pulling double duty with this film, but triple duty with this film. He is the director. He is the co-screenwriter with Mario Puzo. Mario Puzo wrote the book, The Godfather, based off this film. And Francis was also the producer of this film. So he was doing a lot of work. But then again, there's a reason why this trilogy, at least the first one, the second one, are two of the greatest films of all time. Not just the best trilogy of all time, or one of the best trilogies of all time two of the greatest films of all time in my humble opinion because Francis decided to take most of the load of the work for himself. In terms of cast a lot of the same returning members from the first film are back or I should say at least a lot of the people from the first film are returning back for this film. There are some new people and you'll really want to know who they are. As follows we have Al Pacino, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton, Robert De Niro, Talia Shire, Morgana King, John Cazel, Mariana Hill, and Lee Strasberg. Cinematographer for this film was Gordon Willis. It was edited by Peter Zinner, Barry Malkin, and Richard Marks. Nina Rota returns back to do the music for this film. The production companies for this film are Paramount Pictures and the Coppola Company, and it was also distributed by Paramount Pictures. It was released on December 12, 1974 in New York City, and December 20th of 1974 in the United States nationally. This runtime is a pretty long movie at 202 minutes, so that's what almost that's over three hours that's three hours and like 15 minutes <laughs> it's a long movie the budget was just over 10 million at 13 million and it made a box office total of 40 million now as we're zooming through this review it comes to this part of the review where i like to talk about my likes and dislikes of the film now as i mentioned in the last edition that if you like something of mine great we may agree on a few points if we don't no problem i'm not gonna sweat it and you shouldn't sweat it because that's the beauty of these things we all have our different takes and viewpoints on things like movies, TV shows, music, and so on and so forth. And that's what makes life wonderful. Nevertheless, let me begin. One of the things that I look for in a movie is, and particularly maybe in a Godfather type of film or anyone like that, where it has the chance to tell the backstory of a character. And by that, I mean in this film, there's a young boy who plays the young version of Vito Corleone in Italy. He shows him marching through a funeral. Then eventually Vito, the young Vito, goes to the United States all by himself. And to see this whole set of scenes in this film early on of a young Vito and telling that his story in Italy and then coming to the United States was so masterfully done. I almost even want more of it, but I'll save that to my 
dislike part of this film. Although Michael, for the most part, has a real stronghold on the criminal empire enterprise that is the mafia, La Cosa Nostra, at that point in, in, in that story of his life, he still has struggles getting everything. Of course, he wants to become more legitimate with the crime family aspect of obtaining these casinos, but he struggles with Senator Pat Gary in this film. And to see Pat really take a whipping to him, no pun intended, no intentions being mean, but take a real disliking and a real discourse towards him behind closed doors, as Charlie Rich sang about, was really interesting to see someone of Michael's caliber struggle with that aspect before having to turn to the darker side of his operations. But we'll get to that later on in the review, of course. In one of the last few positive, peaceful, respectful, loving moments that Al Pacino plays as Michael Corleone is how Michael's still apologizing on how the film is still not perfectly situated and legitimate. He told his wife, Kay, in the first one, or at some point in the film, that in a few years he'll make the Corleone family legitimate. And then it was in this film, Godfather 2, two years past that time allowance he was going to give them. And he still feels bad about that and still has a deep love for Kay and, of course, his family in that aspect. That's not for too long, though. Shortly after the opening scenes of his son's um, first communion party at Lake Tahoe, Nevada. At the end of Godfather 1, unfortunately, Michael gives the boot to Tom Hagen as the family consigliere. Unfortunately, as Michael says in the film, Godfather 1, that is, he is not a wartime consigliere like Jenko was. Unfortunately, he gets removed, but on a good note, he still becomes the family's lawyer now that they're becoming more legitimate, or at least trying to become more legitimate. That makes Tom Hagen, played by Robert Duvall, really off-kiltered, really offset by that choice because people like Al Miri and Raphael Lampone, who suddenly come out of the woodworks to some extent, are now getting told more stuff, getting paid more. And Tom wishes he were still in the know-all of all the intricate details of this family, at least the stuff that he wishes he could be told, not stuff he actually is able to be told. And it's interesting to that aspect to see the trouble that Tom has for himself, not being part of the main operations, but still having a love for his brother being Michael and still doing whatever it takes to make him happy if he can possibly do that in his experiences with him in life in Nevada or anywhere else it may be. One thing I disliked about Godfather 1 when I reviewed it was that John Cazel and Talia Shire's characters, Connie and Fredo Corleone, were not in the film a whole of a lot. They weren't, I like that, they were missing. That's not the case for this film of Godfather 2 where John Cazel was the main person in this film, to some extent, if you really want to dissect it, Fredo was the main focal point centerfold of this film. Connie Corleone was great in this film. I liked her better in this one than actually the first one, because in this one, she's detached from her family life, doesn't care for her because isn't visiting or with them a lot, boozing and cruising, trying to marry a guy that she barely knows. And there's a brilliant line about that that Michael says, or Al Pacino says in this film, where he says, the ink on your divorce papers aren't even dried yet, and you're trying to marry again? I probably butchered it. I know I did, but I love that line, and I love the scenes that Connie shares with both Fredo and with Michael, Michael and Fredo, because it's so well done. But I'll go into further detail as we go further along in this review, of course, as it usually ends up being the case. Mentioning how apologetic and loving he was to his wife and saying, oh, I'm sorry that's taking so long to get everything ready and how busy he was today and you know, I know I said to be legitimate in a few years, but it's not happening. Up until that point, he was nice, calm, loving to his family and his wife. That is until the botched murder attempt against his life. And that's when he starts to deep dive into the depths of aggravation, misery, 
hiss and vinegar filled and to some extent depression. I mean, it was in the fifties or sixties, so they weren't really diagnosing that at that point, but you could tell he was depressed. He was agitated and all that stuff. And to see that unfold, that element to the story and to the character of Michael Corleone was really well done by Al Pacino, who now was a seasoned actor at that point. One thing that I also found interesting, and it was surprising to some extent when I first watched the film, and then as I move forward on, it makes it even more enjoyable, is the pacing, not just in general, the whole film, but the pacing between Michael's story and Beale's story and how it's weaved together so smoothly and fluently. And I say that because sometimes when you do something like that, you cut a lot of time out for more things in one story than the other. It could be things you want to see more of Michael's story, but you don't get to because you got to see a lot of Vito's story in this film. It's about two people, not just one. And I thought it was so well done that it could have even been a prequel in terms of Vito's story. I wish they made it a prequel, but what can you do now? It's 50 years old. I'm not going to go back in time and do that. It'd be difficult. But it's nice to see it done perfectly. So you're not saying, oh, I wish I saw more of Michael. Now we're seeing Vito. And then, oh, I wish I saw more of that scene of Vito. Not cut back to Michael. Again, though, what can you do? One of the things I found really funny about this film is that Michael, while in Cuba, doesn't give a shit about anything else in that damn country on the island besides suckering him and Roth to get both casinos that he wants. Whereas everybody else is there is, oh, happy birthday. They're caring about Hyman's birthday, the cake and all this stuff, having a good time. But he's just pure business, Michael Corleone. And that really gets under Hyman's skin. It really agitates him, I think, the more you watch the film. And to see Hyman and Johnny Ola really squirm about that it was interesting and enjoyable to see because both of them are really treacherous characters if you look at that in terms of a 50-year span of how villains are in movies nowadays. That was an interesting point to put in the film and I thought that was a really great time in the production as well. <laughs> One of the things I really thought was funny was how while Michael was doing business on say on Cuba in Cuba on the island was how he didn't care about anything else going on there besides suckering Hyman to giving him both casinos during their business dealings in Cuba. You know, others were there excited about having the cake during Hyman's birthday, enjoying their kind of beautiful place like Cuba. He just wanted to be there to do business and leave. And that really got under Hyman and Johnny Ola's skin because they weren't used to that. They thought they were getting the goods on him, but it really was the other way around. I thought that was masterfully done. Mentoring suffering Hyman Roth and Johnny Ola into his master plan at the end of the film and them thinking that he's not knowing what's really going on, but he really does know what's going on. It's a similar treat he got from his father, who played everyone like a fool, thinking, oh, he's this innocent old man or this innocent guy who doesn't know what he's doing. But he secretly knows everything that's happening. He's planned it out to a T. So if plan A doesn't work, plan B works, and this is what's going to happen when that happens, because these people think plan A is ruined and that's not going to happen. And it's the game Mousetrap, where he knows everything that's going to happen. He has backup plans for when things fail. And he was expecting the things to fail. So that's why he has plan C for that aspect. And if that was confusing to you, I don't know what else to say because it, it I, like, I, I just, I can't speak enough about Michael Corleone. I'm sure he's a real scumbag, shitty person, but as a character in the film, he's so brilliantly and so comically amazing because it's like, you know, knew that this was going to be failing or you knew that they were going to fall for this or do this thing. So you had this actual plan to put in place to be three steps ahead of them rather than two steps ahead the other way around. I, I just, I, I don't know what to say to tell you the truth. Although Al Neri is my favorite character in all three Godfather films, Lucetta is my favorite character in Godfather 2. Just the way he has the mystique, the whole black outfit from the hat, the winter coat, the black 
wool turtleneck shirt almost to everything else. It was so mystifying. We don't know anything about him, of course, besides the little bit of time he has on screen in this film. But he does such a, an amazing job in this film. Demersio Tot, who plays him, although I thought was actually Italian, he's Bulgarian, did a great job saying nothing in this film. I wish we saw more of him. But we'll save that grievance for the dislike section of this review. The scene, or I should say scenes, when Senator Pat Gary is in bed with the dead hooker next to him with all blood all over at Fredo's nightclub or at Ladies of the Night Place, whatever you want to call it, brothel of some sort, was a great source of revenge because Senator Gary was such an asshole to Michael and his family, not just his personal family, but his professional family, squeezing him, wanting to squeeze him dry like an orange of all the money they had, and then he gets his revenge, Michael does, on Senator Gary at the end, making it look accidental on Gary's part. It was like, thank you. The one time I'm siding with you, Michael, one of the few times I'm siding with you, not just in general, but in this film particularly, this is rightfully done because he screwed you over. He was an a-hole to you. He disrespected your honor and your family and your dignity. And now you're going to get what you want the way you want to get it. And, you know, Michael talk to you. Granted, I, I don't support or say you should go out and get rid of someone who's an enemy business-wise or personally, but they did it really great in this film, demonstrating and putting into play. If you thought the whole part up until Michael and Fredo spending time together drinking daiquiris and soda water together was great, the business really picks up here, as Jim Ross would say, the wrestling announcer, because when Fredo unintentionally announces how he knew about the place and how he actually was friends with Johnny Ola and Hyman Roth, and Michael sees that and gives the nod to who said it to get rid of Johnny Ola, that's when business picks up and it really gets intense. And that's when I enjoy this film because it's like, yes, finally the action is here. Granted, the film was made 50 years ago, so action back then was much different than it certainly is nowadays. But that's when things spice up a little bit in the kitchen, as they say, or as I say. And that's a time in the movie where I really to make sure I'm paying attention as best as I can. As much as I said it with the sequence of Senator Gary and the dead lady of the night in his hotel room, I don't approve of that way of operating life, both the lady's profession or how they disposed of the lady at night for their own prosperity with business relations of Senator Gary. I do think that the way that Johnny Ola was disposed by Pusetta was brilliantly done. As I said, Pusetta doesn't say a whole heck of a lot beyond the sequence where Michael gives the nod to Pusetta behind him, the slow, tense moments, the progression from him going to the room, getting rid of him, and almost getting rid of Hyman Roth as well. I thought it was expertly crafted by both the actors and the writers and the directors being Francis Ford Coppola. It almost felt like Jaws a little bit. It's the da that's how you felt with that um, ending sequence of who said ending Johnny Ola's life. If you thought Michael lost his marbles when Fredo sold out the family to Johnny Ola and Hyman Roth, wait till you hear about what happens afterwards when Michael gets back to the United States and Kay Adams told him they didn't just lose the baby because it died in infancy, but it was because she had an abortion. She didn't want to bring another son into this sick world that she says with him in the hotel room. And then you see Michael tense up like a red cherry tomato. It's like, oh my gosh, because back then you don't do that. Not saying that they, the men were on the right, but that wasn't something you did. Or if you did, you did really secretively because men were the head of the household. They were going to continue the genes forward and outward and respect the manner to some extent. And that's when Michael really lost and had no remorse for any personal aspect besides maybe his kids to a degree, of course, and his sister, of course. And 
the powerful part of the film is, of course, she's sort of cringe away from any physical abuse, but the acting on Diane Keaton's part and Michael, Michael Corleone, Al Pacino's part, I mean, who was better than those? It's a masterclass in professionalism, also top tier performing acting. Earlier in the review, I mentioned how Connie Corleone, played by Talia Shire, Francis Ford Coppola's sister, was in the film a lot, along with John Cazel, who played Fredo. At the end of the film, there's a brilliant scene in the dark in their sort of bar area by the water between Michael Corleone and his sister Connie. And Connie basically pleads to him to allow her to come home, to live with them, to take care of him and his kids, and to forgive Fredo because she hated him for so long, Michael, or I hated you for so long, Michael, is what she said. And to see her have this come to Jesus moment after her mother dies definitely made her mother proud. But also it was nice to see that she was coming down from insanity back to Ramosi after a long time away from it. Now, as always, there are always some things about films and movies that we don't like. And this is the time of the review where I share my dislikes of The Godfather Part 2. I wish we saw more of Vito as a kid. We only saw like 11 minutes of it. And I really thought that part of the film was really interesting. Granted, we saw when Vito got older and he went back when he was an adult and a father and he got rid of the dawn of Italy's crime in near Corleone, Italy, and he got rid of him by stabbing him in the chest and giving him the oil. I thought that was interesting, but we could have done so much more with a young Vito that it leaves more on the cutting room floor, I guess you could say. One thing that I found really confusing, and I sort of mentioned it in my like section, was how fast Vito moved up the ranks in terms of mafia life. Of course, it showed the struggles he, his family had when his son was born, he had the health struggles, and then getting fired from the grocer's job. But I really thought they could have done a better job of showing the struggles he felt and had as a young family moving up the ranks of society in New York because, you know, it doesn't make sense. Oh, they suddenly move so fast up the ranks in terms of the crime life, but regular life, it doesn't show that. I didn't, I didn't get that. But again, another example of there's only so much time you can tell in a story of three hours in length, you know, what's valuable to tell, what isn't valuable. You got to make that judgment. And I think Francis Ford Coppola did a pretty good job at doing that. I get being really mad that your wife got rid of a child that you were going to be having another boy, especially, but it was really cringe and really uncomfortable during the whole sequence when he rages at Kay and then hits her. Sometimes I skip over that or lower the volume because I just, I, I don't like watching that. So it's really unnecessary in terms of, especially nowadays standards, but I just, I, it wasn't my favorite sequence. Although it shows a little bit of Tom Hagen being in charge of the family while Michael's away in Cuba, I really would have liked to have seen the struggles he had as Don of the family temporarily with Al Neri and Rockland and Pot and trying to deal with all those guys. So I don't really consider him quality enough for the job and know he's not the full-time Don, but it would have been nice to have seen his aggravations and also taking on that role while Michael hides for his life. And finally, with my last dislike of this film, I sort of mentioned it already in my like section, I wish we saw more of Lucetta would have been cool to have seen what would have happened if he really got rid of both Hyman Roth and Jaiola. If he was successful, what would have happened? Would Michael have not had to need Rocco to go kill him and risk his life? We'll never know, but it's always nice to think, oh, what would have happened if Lucetta was successful? Now that we've come to the end of this review for Godfather 2, another edition of Critiquing with Carr, not just this week, but the last few weeks, you've come to my favorite part, which is ranking this film out of 10 Diamond Days and giving my final thoughts. And that is, this film is nine out of 10 Diamond Days worth. From start to finish, it's a great film, although it is very long in length, it is certainly worth it. It's one of those classic cornerstone films of all time, not just in the last 50 years, but in the last 100 years, or however long films have been around for, and Hollywood's been around for. 
this film is a cornerstone of that. It's one of the most successful and most enjoyable sequels of all time. I hope you agree. If you don't, leave some comments down below or on the audio platforms why you may disagree or agree with me. That's all I can ask for. If you've enjoyed this review, give us a like, comment, share, follow, or subscribe on both platforms if that's your choice. Follow on Instagram at Critiquing with Car. And with that, I'll say, till next time, when we see each other again at the theaters, take care of my movie maniacs and film freaks.